Hello, I'm Rick Lavoie. I'm a visiting professor here at Simmons College in Boston in the shadow of historic Fenway Park. In 1988, I gathered a group of 15 parents, teachers, and professionals together to film a video of a workshop called Fat City. The goal of the workshop and the video is to make parents and teachers know what it feels like to struggle with learning every day, an experience that most of us have never had. None of us that day could have foreseen the success and the wide distribution of the video, and now it's become a staple in many graduate programs and teacher training programs and parent education programs as well. To celebrate the impact of the video, Public Broadcasting asked me to conduct a lecture at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. I met with a large group of parents, teachers, and professionals, and following the lecture, we had a smaller group discussion where we talked about some of the struggles that children face and the struggles that parents and teachers face in dealing with these special kids. The small group discussions are part of this production, and you may recognize some familiar faces if you've seen the original Fat City video because we invited some of the alumni from that initial video to join us for this discussion. We are the first generation of parents and teachers and professionals who understand what learning disabilities are. In previous generations, these children were diagnosed and labeled as lazy or unmotivated. The medical profession has now taught us that this is indeed a neurologically-based problem that will be with the child for the rest of his or her life. When future generations of parents and teachers evaluate us, they won't ask how high the SAT scores went. They won't ask how many students we got into Ivy League schools. Rather, they'll say, what did you do with this information about learning disabilities? How did you help these kids who struggle? These kids who I refer to as Saturday kids, those kids who live from Saturday to Saturday, knowing that the weekdays in between are filled with frustration, anxiety, and tension in the classroom. We all play a variety of roles in the lives of these kids. Mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, cousins, teachers, friends, social workers, psychologists. And this production is designed to give you information and inspiration that will help you carry out that role in a more effective way. It's been said that it takes a village to raise a child, and nowhere is that more true than in the life of a child who struggles with learning every day. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here this morning, and uh, today is going to be a special day for all of us. Today we're here to celebrate and reflect on the success of a video called Fat City and the workshop that gave birth to that video. Uh, many of you have seen the video, and we're going to talk about its exposure and, and distribution fairly soon, but few of you know the history of it because the workshop actually began about 10 years before the video was produced, uh, and it's sort of an interesting story in terms of how it came about. Um, I was a teacher at a small school in central Massachusetts, a residential school for kids with learning problems, and it was my first year of teaching, and one of my responsibilities was that I, I had a boy named Craig in my class. Craig was about 12 years old, bright, bright kid, athletic kid, tough little guy, had tremendous learning and language problems, and my job was I had 40 minutes, 40 minutes a day to teach this kid how to read, write, and spell. And he was a wonderful kid. We had a terrific relationship. And one day at the end of class, I gave him a piece of composition paper. And I said, Craig, take this piece of paper home back to the dormitory where he lived, and I want you to write a composition for me about your dog. I know you've got a dog at home that you love. I want you to write a composition about your dog. So he dutifully took the paper back to his dormitory room, wrote a composition, brought it in, gave it to me the next day. I put it in my briefcase, closed up the briefcase, taught classes for the day, went home, had a little dinner, and then popped open the briefcase to do my corrections for class for the next day. I took out Craig's composition, and I took out a red pen. I don't own a red pen anymore, but I had a lot of red pens then. And I started making corrections, and nothing got past me. Every spelling error, every punctuation error, every error he made, I caught. By the time I got done, it was a sea of red. There was more red in the paper than there was blue. Put the paper back in my briefcase, went to bed, got up the next morning, headed off to my second period class where I had Craig. I walked into the classroom at the beginning of the class, and Craig was actually waiting there for me. Now, this was very unusual. He was often late, sometimes on time, but he was never, ever early for anything. And he was actually sitting in the class waiting for me. And I walked in, and he stood up, and he came over to me, and he said, I said, you're here on time. This is great, Craig. We'll get started. And he said, yeah, Mr. Lavoie, I wanted to know, did you get a chance to read my composition? Did you read my composition last night? I said, yeah, it was terrific, Craig. I really enjoyed it. I said, you had good margins, and, you know, name, date, and day was on the paper. You used a lot of vocabulary words that we had talked about. You did a nice job, Craig, but now we've got to talk about the mistakes you've made. 
And I sat next to him and I opened up the briefcase and took the paper out and put it between us. And now he's seeing it for the first time since I got my hands on it. And we started going over the corrections line by line. And I said, here, Craig, you spelled dog with a seven. There's no seven in dog. He was one of those kind of kids. And we got about halfway through the corrections. And I turned to say something to him. And I looked, and there was a tear running down the side of his nose. Now, again, Craig was a tough little guy. I'd seen him in trouble. I'd seen him get injured in sports. I'd never seen him cry. And so I had the wisdom to put the pen down. And I turned to him, and I said, Craig, what's the matter? What's the problem? And he said, Mr. Lavoie, I know you're doing your job. I know it's your job to correct these mistakes. And I know those are real mistakes in this paper. But the night before last, after study hall, all the kids went up to the gym to play basketball, and I stayed in for an extra 20 minutes just to proofread this. I thought it was perfect. I thought it was perfect. I couldn't wait to give it to you, and I couldn't wait to get it back from you today. And it just blows me away. It's just so disappointing to see all the mistakes that I missed. And I turned to Craig, and I put my hands on his shoulder, and I looked into his eyes and said the dumbest thing I've ever said to a kid with a learning disability, and I've never said it since. I said, Craig, I know how you feel. And he stood up and he pointed at me and he said, the devil you do. Don't you dare tell me you know what this feels like. Tell me you'll help me. Tell me you'll feel badly for me. But don't you dare tell me you know what this feels like because you don't have idea one what this feels like. And he stormed out of the classroom. And as Craig left the class, two great insights came to me that really did change my life and my career. Two great insights. One is this. I will never know what it's like to have a learning disability. I worked with these kids for 30 years, residential schools, wake them up in the morning, put them to bed at night. I've spent my entire adult life among these kids, and to this day, I have no idea what it must be like to be unable to read, unable to spell, unable to deal with language in a world that insists that you be able to deal with language. I have no idea what that must be like. I have no idea what it must be like to be a 14-year-old boy, as a mother told me one time, and he's standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, looking at the Grand Canyon with his mother, and he turns to his mother and says, what a magnificent panorama this is. Then he goes to the souvenir stand and buys a postcard for his favorite uncle and writes on the postcard, it was good. Because his verbal vocabulary contains words like magnificent and panorama, but his written vocabulary is limited to words like it was good. I have no idea what that must feel like. None. And the second insight that came to me is about my colleagues and friends in education. If you're a teacher watching this video or in the audience, if you're a teacher, I can fairly safely tell you two things about yourself. One is, you did pretty well in school. You might not have burned the place down, but you've got to have a bachelor's degree to be a teacher. Most of us have advanced degrees. So if you're a teacher, you did pretty well in school. And secondly, you like going to school. If you didn't like going to school, you picked a really lousy profession, lady, because you picked the only one to put you back here. So the reality is that those of us who teach did well in school and enjoyed going to school. So who's the kid we can best relate to? Who's the kid we can best understand? Who's the kid whose company we enjoy? The president of the senior class, the head of the dating club, the head of the drama club, the kid who is like us, and who's the kid we can least understand, the kid who needs us the most. What I came to realize is that if you sit on this side of the desk as a teacher, you didn't have a lot of trouble sitting on that side of the desk. And it got me thinking about what if I put together a workshop that made teachers feel like teachers and parents for the first time in their lives feel what it's, what it's like to fail in school to feel that frustration, anxiety, and tension that our kids experience every day. And so I put together this workshop called Fat City. And F-A-T stands for Frustration, Anxiety, and Tension. I wish it was different. Um, uh, I gained quite a bit of weight in the, last, uh, in the last several years. And about two years ago, I've lost most of it now, but about two years ago I was at an elementary school and walking down the hallway and this little boy came up to me and he said, Oh, Fat City. And I said, uh, I said, you've seen the video? And he said, what video is that? And I said, okay. <laughs> it's now one of the largest selling videos in the history of educational video. Um, I was really thrilled to go to a university recently, and the students in the learning disabilities department, in the special education department, had done a timeline of the history of special education. And on the timeline was marked 1989, the year the Fat City video was distributed, which meant a great deal to me. But it, it has played an important role in the field. It's been shown at the White House um, uh, several times Barbara Bush used to show it to literacy volunteers at the White House. So those of us who got together that day had really no idea, no idea at all, the impact that it would have. What PBS has asked me to do is to talk about the, uh, how the video came to be and the impact that it's had and why it resonates. 
after I had done the workshop for about 15 years, I was doing it one morning in Connecticut, and a gentleman named Bud Schiff approached me, and he said, we need to make a video out of this. This needs to be a video. Everyone needs to see this. And uh, I, unfortunately, I didn't realize what a serious and devoted person he was, and I didn't think it was a real good idea. I didn't think it would translate to film, and that, that wonderful gentleman followed me around for about a year before he could finally convince me to make a video of it. My son said to me one time, in your life, Dad, uh, opportunity doesn't knock on the door. It has to kick the door in before you answer it. <laughs> the impact that it's had, it's had tremendous impact on institutions. It's being shown at universities. It's used in undergraduate training, parent training. Um, so it's had an impact on, in, on institutions. But the thing that means the most to me, and for those of us who put it together, the thing that means the most to me is the impact that it's had on individuals. I was in my office one day, and I received a phone call from an attorney, an attorney of some note in New York City. And he asked if I was the person who had done the Fat City video, and I told him that I had. And he said, you know, when I was a boy growing up, I had pretty severe learning disabilities. They're gone away now, he said in complete denial. He said, they're gone away now. And um, he said, but when friends of mine have a child who's struggling in school, many times they will send the child to me to give them a little bit of counsel and advice about how to deal with learning problems. And the kids come and tell me all these stories about the terrible things that happen to them and things that teachers say to them and cruel things that kids say to them. He said, and I've always thought, I'm so glad I didn't have to go through that. I didn't have any teachers that were rough on me. I didn't have any kids who bothered me. It's so sad these kids have to go through that. And he said, last evening I got a phone call from a friend. And the friend invited me over to dinner and said, after dinner there's a video I want you to see. So I went over to the house and we're having dinner and I looked in the den and on the top of the television set I could see the Fat City video. And he said, boy, that's the last thing I need tonight is to see a video on learning disabilities. But he said, I sat down to watch it. And he said, Mr. Lavoie, I cried for the first time in my adult life. And as he started talking, he had to hang up the phone and call me back later. He said, that's exactly what my life was like. And I put it away someplace. I'd forgotten about all those painful memories. I, because that is precisely what school was like for me. A father told me one time that he was having great difficulty with his son in high school. They just, the son was having a great deal of difficulty in school and the father just didn't get it. And the father was saying he wasn't motivated, he wasn't working hard enough. He said, one morning I went to work and I got in the car and on the passenger seat of the car was a video with a note on it from my son that said, Dad, please watch this. He said, I got, I got to work that day and during lunch I put it in the VCR in my office and watched it. He said, I left work at 3 o'clock that day and went to my son's high school and met him in the parking lot and hugged him for the first time in three years. That's the impact that it has because people, those of us who didn't struggle in school, those of us who enjoyed going to school, it's very difficult to understand kids who don't. It's very difficult to understand that kids go to school for a living. That's their job. And we're talking about kids who are failing at their job every day. I had a teacher call me one time and she said, Rick, I've been teaching for over 30 years and tomorrow I'm going to start all over again. I saw your video last night. It changed the way I looked at things. One of the most meaningful calls I ever received was only a few weeks ago from an organization in the Midwest that trains bank tellers. And they said, we want to use the video to train bank tellers. Would that be okay with you? I said, well, God bless, but why? I mean, it's got nothing to do, it's got nothing to do with the banking industry. It's got to do with learning disabilities. And the person said, no, it's got to do with good human relations. It's about good human relations. It's about the way we ought to treat each other. So for whatever reason, it's resonated. Why has it resonated? Why has it lasted so long? And I think I finally realized why. The reason people remember Fat City, the reason people respond to the video is very simply this. That I do things to adults in that video that we don't do to adults, but we do them to kids. I treat adults the way many of us treat kids. And that's a very, very unusual thing for people to see. That's something we don't usually do. Let me give you an example. Suppose at the, beginning, at the beginning of this lecture, as at most lectures, you were asked to turn off your cell phones. Please turn off your cell phones. Now suppose in the middle of the lecture, Kim sitting in front here, her cell phone begins to ring. How likely would it be, folks, how likely would it be that I would stop the lecture and say, well, I guess you're just a little bit more special than the rest of us, aren't you? The rest of us turned off our phones, but the rules don't apply to you because you're just a little bit more special than the rest of us, aren't you, little missy? We all follow the rules, but you're just, it's your world and we're just walking through. Could you imagine if I did that to her? She'd walk out. Anybody who knew her would walk out. 
And the folks that put this uh, presentation together would say, Rick, what was that all about? We don't treat each other that way. You would never do that to an adult. Then don't do it to a kid. I do a lot of work in classroom management, and my, my, the, what I, the drum beat that I keep drumming and drumming and drumming with teachers and parents is, if you wouldn't do it to an adult, don't do it to a kid. There's one point in the video where I take the, ch the student's paper and tear it up in front of them. Could you imagine submitting a report to your boss, and your boss calls you in the office and says, I don't like the way this is done, and tearing it up in front of you. You would never do that to an adult. You'd never do that to an adult. You see... What we need to understand is dealing with kids, a lot of it is just good human nature. Nine out of ten of the, of the parenting books you read say, find the one thing the kid likes and loves and use that to punish and reward him. It's just lousy human relations. And again, I think the reason that the video resonates is I do things with adults that you would never do to children, and I think that's why people remember the video. I mean, imagine if you had a guest who was arriving at your home for dinner, and you were supposed to be there at 8 o'clock. Someone from work, a couple you know from work, and they arrive at 8.15. How likely would it be that you'd open the door and say, excuse me, what time is it? <laughs> 8.15. Around this house, when we say 8 o'clock, we mean 8 o'clock. <laughs> now wipe your feet and come on in. I mean, you'd never treat an adult that way. You'd never treat an adult that way, and yet we do those kinds of things to kids. The other reason I think that the video has had the impact it's had is we kind of stuck to the basics. We talked, uh, I did mention carbon paper, which I'm sure is confusing to anybody who's, uh, who's under 30 years old. And we did talk a little bit about Watergate, but that's the way those things go. Um, but basically, we just kind of stuck to the basics. And those are the things that resonate. We talked about fairness. We talked about the fact that when you talk to children, if you ask a child what it means to be fair, that most children will tell you that fairness means that everyone gets the same. Fairness means everyone gets the same. When in reality, that's not what fairness means at all. Fairness actually means that everyone gets what he or she needs. Fairness depends on need. And what we need to understand is we need to take that into our classrooms. You need to take that home with you. I recommend to teachers the first day of school, and it's never too late, the next time you go to school, you're a teacher in the fourth grade, you write the word fairness up on the blackboard, and you explain to the kids what fairness means. And you, said, kids, you say, kids, in this classroom, from this point forward, in this classroom, fairness doesn't mean that everyone gets the same. Fairness means that everyone gets what he or she needs. And because what, you need are different, what, you, what your needs are different, what you get is going to be different. That's the way the rules are going to be in this classroom from now on. And the first time a kid comes up to you and says, hey, how come Johnny gets three pages of homework and we get six? That's not fair. That's not fair. You can say, sure, it's fair, sweetheart. Of course it's fair, darling. Heck, I'm not going to argue with you it's not the same. But remember, we talked about it, honey. Fairness doesn't mean that everyone gets the same. Fairness means everyone gets what he or she needs. And because I wear the suit, I decide who needs what. <laughs> Now, why don't you go out to recess? Because this discussion is over. I am tired of seeing teachers argue with 11-year-old kids as to why they've modified the curriculum for other 11-year-old kids. That needs to stop. That's a decision we make as professionals. But you've also got to do it at home, as moms and dads. You can't, so many moms and dads, how do I balance the scales? Our, our special needs child needs a special tutor. We spend extra time, energy, and resources on him. How do I make it up to the other kids? You don't, and you don't even try. And the more you try to make it up to the other kids, the, de the deeper you're going to dig that hole. As long as you can look in the eyes of the other kids and say, honey, if it was you, I'd be doing the same thing. If it was you, I'd be doing the same thing. When I talk to parents and teach about, about fairness, many times they'll say, but kids don't understand the concept of fairness. They already do. They know that dad gets two pork chops and they get one. It's always been that way. Yeah, you've got three kids at home. One's got a stomach virus. He's upstairs in bed. You bring dinner, dinner up to bed to him. You don't find the other two kids sitting in their beds waiting for dinner in bed. Kids can understand at any given point in time that one kid's needs are greater than another's. As a school administrator who deals primarily with high school age students, I see uh, young people who, who struggle, who work hard, and don't understand until they are tested and then get uh, some help in understanding what their learning style is and, and learn what their disability is. The relief in knowing that it's not that they're, they're, they're not smart, it's not that they're stupid, it's that there's something that's really hard for them and there's a reason and that there are strategies that uh, specialists can help them with. It, it's a relief and it makes such a difference to them 
they can then go back to the work and, and employ the strategies and be successful in a way that they never were before uh, so many times. And that's, that's so rewarding to see. We've shared our video with a lot of people. We have multiple copies. And we wouldn't allow our daughter to go to college unless the video went with her. As a student with a learning disability, you need to understand why you've gone through this testing, what has come out of the testing, and then from there you can take it and learn the strategies to cope through not just school but through life. Because I still to this day use the same strategies I used in eighth grade. Um, you know, maybe it's not for biology or for math, but it's for, you know, accounting or whatever I may have to do at work or at home. Do you find that, I mean, that, that since there are so many problems that are academic that also have social applications, do you find that the coping skills that you developed for your academic problems are things that you're able to apply elsewhere? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the advocating that I learned in school has helped me to get jobs, to, to keep jobs. Um, and just on a day-to-day -day basis, it's something as easy as driving down the road and needing to get someplace. My directions, I may not know the street names, but I use landmarks. Um, I may not know to go right or left because it may take me a little longer to process that right is to this side or left is to this side. So yes, I do use the applications on a daily basis. I'm a high school math teacher and I teach learning disabled students all day. And one of the many things I got out of this is what he talked about, um, I know how you feel as a teacher to the student. And the reality is I sometimes feel that I know what they feel, but in reality I probably don't know what they're actually going through. And that is a very good reminder for me to know that. When I went to vacation Bible school, and I talked to my minister about it, I said, well, you know, we were getting these kids in, and all those kids who are not able to read well in second grade for our program are the same ones who give me problems, you know, all, all the while. I took it before kind of fat city is, you know, the kids are just bad. I mean, they don't read, and they've got this bad side. But you're, now I'm hearing you say it's all part of the same inability. It's all part of the disability. Kids in our society have convinced us as parents and teachers that fairness means that everyone gets the same. Um, the evidence, uh, you go to a teacher conference uh, and um, you've got three kids at home, 8, 10, and 12, and you see a book the 10-year-old would love, but you can't find a book for the 8-year-old and 12-year-old, so, so you don't buy a book because you never bring a book home to one and not the others. Uh, Christmas time, this goes wild. Uh, you look under the tree, it's Christmas Eve, Johnny has 10 gifts, Billy has 10 gifts, Michael only has 9 gifts. So you jump in the car, you go to Walmart, you buy a can of spray deodorant or pineapple or something, wrap it in Christmas paper, put it on the tree, because it all needs to be the same. And what we need to do is convince parents and teachers, give them permission to treat them differently. Uh, when I consult with schools and I'll say, this child needs more time to be tested, this child needs uh, more time to study, this child needs a modified test, many times the teacher will say, I can't do that. And I'll say, why not? There's a lot of answers I'll accept. I'll accept because I don't know how. I'll accept because I don't get paid enough. I'll accept because I don't believe in inclusion. I'll accept because I don't like the kid. I mean, I'll go to the mat with a teacher on any one of those answers. The one answer I won't accept is the one I get most often, which is I can't do that for him because it's not fair to the others. It has nothing to do with the others. It has absolutely nothing to do with the others. That's what he needs, and it's the teacher and parent's responsibility to meet that need. I'm a father of two students, an 11th grade girl and a 6th grade boy. Uh, I'm not a teacher, so I, I uh, reacted to what Rick was talking about this morning as a parent uh, rather than as an educator. I, I, th I think that you get into a certain sort of almost mode of, of, uh, of talking sometimes to children in a way that's quite different from the way you would talk to adults. The sarcasm that's sometimes used, the throwaway lines that are sometimes used, uh, that you do just as a, a matter of automatic routine talking to children that you would never do with an adult. At any given point in time, any kid would prefer to be viewed as a bad kid than a dumb kid. If you put a kid in a position of choosing between looking bad and looking dumb, he will choose to look bad. So you're the basketball coach. It's the end of practice. You've got 10 minutes left. Your team is sitting up in the bleachers, and you say, gee, we've got 10 minutes left. Uh, Kevin and Michael, come on down and demonstrate that passing drill that we learned yesterday. And as Kevin comes off the stands, he slaps some other kid in the back of the head. You need to recognize, why did he do that? Why did he hit the other kid? Because he couldn't do the drill.
And as he's coming off the stands, he's thinking, I don't remember how to do that drill. I'm going to look dumb in front of the coach. I'm going to look dumb in front of the other kids. But if I hit this kid, the coach will throw me out of practice. And everybody will think I'm bad, but nobody will think I'm dumb. And I'd rather have people think I'm bad than dumb. So many times when a kid acts bad in class, it's because, to his perception, he's been put in a position of choosing between looking bad and looking dumb. And I'm here to tell you, the overwhelming majority of times, they will choose to look bad rather than look dumb. The other reason that I think the Fat City video has had such a long shelf life is that the goal of the video was fairly, fairly moderate. You see, the goal of the video wasn't to make you learn how to deal with these kids. The goal of the video was to make you want to learn to deal with these kids. It was designed to create sensitivity. It was designed to make you more sensitive to the needs, the very special needs of these very special kids. Every once in a while, I'll get a phone call from a teacher, and they'll say, the person will say, I saw your video last night, and I really, it was really, really good, but it didn't teach me what to do with the kids. It didn't teach me what to do tomorrow. It didn't teach me how to help the kids in class. And the implication in their voice is, the workshop didn't work. See, my feeling is, by virtue of the fact you called, it mean, means it worked. Because it got you off ground zero. It got you thinking about, it got you thinking about what you can do for these kids to make life work for them. Because the reality is when it comes to being a teacher, as you've heard so many times, before they care how much you know, they've got to know how much you care. They've got to understand that you're sensitive to their needs. You've got to, they've got to understand that although you've never walked in their shoes, that you do have an understanding of how they struggle in school every day. And we have a tremendous problem in our schools today with kids who learn differently. When it comes to fairness, the most important thing you can understand is there is nothing so unequal as the equal treatment of unequals. There is nothing so unequal as the equal treatment of unequals. And you know, I don't even like the phrase special education because it implies that, that we're special and other regular teachers aren't or that our kids are special and other people's kids aren't. And I don't mean that at all, but if there's one difference between special education and regular education, it's probably this. Many of my colleagues and friends in regular education will often say, oh, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. The squeaky wheel gets the grease. You know what we're trained in special education? Squeaky wheel needs the grease. That's why it's squeaking. And if you don't give it some grease, it's going to fall off the wagon. I think one of the most distasteful phrases in education today is this one, attention-seeking behavior. He's doing it for attention. Well, then give him some. Give him some. Listen to what we say. He's doing it for attention. So I what? I ignored him. The child is telling you what he needs, and you give him just the opposite. Now, one of the problems we're having in schools today, if you remember from the video, there's one point where I say that we drag kids through a curriculum they're not ready for. And that problem is getting bigger and bigger as time goes on. It's one of the problems that we've been working on, but we haven't solved it. And one of the biggest issues we have in schools today is an ongoing conflict between remedial and compensatory education. Remedial and compensatory education. And let me show you how this works. If you have a child who's failing in school, if you have a child who's struggling in school, there are two ways you can deal with that child, and let me show you what they are. Suppose you've got a child and he's in the seventh grade. He's in grade seven, but he's functioning at the third grade level. There's a gap there. There's a gap there, and you want to close that gap. Well, there's two ways you can do it. One is called remedial education. Remedial education says, kid, you're in the seventh grade, but you're functioning at the fourth grade level, and I want to close that gap, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to improve your reading, writing, and spelling skills. I'm going to close that gap by making you a better reader, writer, and speller. I'm going to take your fourth grade skills and bring them up to seventh grade level. I'm going to close that gap by remediating your problems. That's remedial education, and that is good. The other approach is called compensatory education. Whole different approach. Compensatory education says, kid, you're in the seventh grade, but you're functioning at the fourth grade level, and I want to close that gap, and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm not going to try to improve your skills. I'm going to take the curriculum and bring it down to you. I'm going to modify the curriculum. I'm going to put the book on tape. I'm going to modify the testing. I'm going to make adjustments in the curriculum, and I'm going to take that seventh grade curriculum and bring it down to you. That's called compensatory education, and that's good too. But the problem we have in American education is we're so busy doing compensatory education that no one's doing any remediating anymore. No one's trying to fix the problem. I'll go to a high school principal, and I'll say, how are you doing in special ed? How are you doing in special ed at the school? And he'll say, we're doing fine here. In fact, over the summer, we took all of the history books and put the history books on tape. So now the child with a learning disability can go in, and instead of taking out the history book, he takes out the history tape. We're done. We're fine. Well, that principal is forgetting something very important, and that is this. The problem is not that the child can't read the history book. The problem is the child can't read. 
And putting the book on tape is not dealing with the problem. It's only dealing with the symptom of the problem. The child can't read. Symptomatic of that, he can't read the history book. So you put the history book on tape, he still can't read. He still can't read. I've got a long-standing bias that there's only one difference between men and women. There are probably more, but the only difference I've been able to find is that men think the Three Stooges are funny and women don't. Right? I mean, I don't care if, if the house is on fire and this is original curly, I'm not leaving. But compensatory education reminds me of an episode in the Three Stooges where Mo sits in a porcupine. And he's got all these quills sticking out of his backside. And he goes running to Curly and Larry. Curly, help me. Curly, Larry, help me. I sat in a porcupine. I got all these quills. And Curly and Larry come over and they say, we'll help you, Mo. And they take a pair of scissors and cut the ends of the quills off so you can't see them anymore. See, that's compensatory education. The quills are still in there. The problem still exists. Okay, you put the books on tape. You've made these modifications. The kid is passing his history courses. He's getting A's and B's in his report card. But he still can't deal with language. And I think that's one of the tried and true things that we talk about in the video. We talk about risk-taking in the video. If you remember, there's a part of the video where I begin accepting the answer, I don't know, from the people in the workshop, and everybody begins saying, I don't know. You see, for years we've called kids with learning problems lazy. Anybody who works with me knows yeah, I got a, my only big hot button is don't call these kids lazy because for my money, about 90% of the time when you call a child with a learning disability lazy, it's not that he's lazy, but rather some, suffers from something called learned helplessness. There's been tons of research that demonstrates that when a human being thinks it's going to fail at something, it tends to not try. When a human be being feels he's helpless, he stops trying. One of my areas of learned helplessness is automotive repair. I have no idea how to fix a car, none. I'm not proud of that. I just have no idea how to fix a car. And suppose at the end of this workshop, you folks go downstairs, and you're standing in the lobby waiting to leave, and you watch, and you see me go out in the parking lot and get behind the wheel of the car and turn the key. The car doesn't start. I'll turn it again. It doesn't start. I'll turn it a third time. If it doesn't start, I'll come in and call the garage. Now, you might look at me and you say, boy, Rick Lavoie's a pretty lazy person. He couldn't start the car, he didn't even try to fix it himself, he just came in and called the garage. I would submit to you, I'm not a lazy person, i got plenty of faults, but laziness isn't one of them. My schedule is busy than 95% of the people I know. I'm not lazy, I am learned helpless. My thing is, why open up the hood? Why get the tie dirty? I mean, unless somebody's lying dead over the engine block, I'm not going to notice the difference. And if there were wires pulled out, I wouldn't know where to put it back in. I'm not lazy, I'm learned helpless. Now, if I were an automotive mechanic and my car wouldn't start, and I just came in and called a garage, you could call me lazy. You see, one of the mistakes we make as teachers is we don't do a real good job, those of us who teach, at what's called differential diagnosis, and that is recognizing that people can have the same symptoms for very different reasons. Suppose this gentleman in front here has a terrible headache, and I have a terrible headache. And so we both go to the doctors. The doctor examines us. Turns out his headache is caused by, by allergies. My headache is caused by some sort of a tumor. Even though our symptoms are the same, the treatment is going to be very different. He's going to get an antihistamine, I'm going to get brain surgery. He doesn't need brain surgery, and, I, and an antihistamine is not going to help me. Doctors are very good at looking at people with the same symptoms, but giving them different treatments. We tend as teachers to look at five kids with their heads down on the desk and assume that they're all lazy. No, maybe two of them are lazy, and maybe three of them suffer from learned helplessness, because the symptoms are exactly the same, and it's something we talked about in the video many years ago. One of the things we've learned since the video came out is that um, learning disabilities is a very pervasive disability, and that is it impacts on every moment of the child's life. To demonstrate the pervasive nature of the disability, I want to do an experiment with you. Raise your hand, please, if you've ever dealt with a child with a learning disability who has difficulty spelling. Yeah, that was just an aerobic activity. That was, just to get, that was just to get the blood flowing. Yeah, I mean, the overwhelming majority of kids have difficulty with spelling. One of the reasons that learning disabled kids have difficulty spelling is they have difficulty with what's called revisualization. And let me show you what this means. If I were to ask Kim, sitting in front here, if I were to ask Kim to spell the word America for me, she would revisualize the word America in her mind. She would picture the word America in her mind, and she would call off the letters. Either that or she would call off the letters, and if she called them off, they'd flash up on a screen in front of her. She uses a skill of revisualization in order to spell. That's why sometimes you might get a flyer from the supermarket, and you open it up, and it says, cantaloupe's 59 cents. And you point at it, and you say, hey, that's not how you spell cantaloupe. And somebody says, well, how do you spell it? You say, well, I don't know, but that's wrong. <laughs> so even though you don't know how to spell it, you know that's wrong. That's because you can revisualize in your mind's eye what the word cantaloupe should look like, and that doesn't look like what you know it should look like. We use the skill of revisualization 
in order to spell. Many kids with learning problems can't revisualize, therefore they can't spell. Okay, the research is very clear on that. But do you understand that the child who can't spell because he can't revisualize will also have a great deal of difficulty keeping his room clean at home for the same reason? Because, you see, Kim not only uses a skill of revisualization when she spells, she also uses it when she cleans the room. I'll give you an example. Kim has a big holiday dinner, has all of her family back to her home for dinner. At the end of the meal, they all leave, and she goes into the kitchen to clean the kitchen. It's a pit. Dirty dishes, pots and pans all over the place. It's a mess. You know how she cleans it? She revisualizes what it looks like clean. She makes a mental picture of what the kitchen looked like clean and then does things to it until it matches that picture. That's how you wash a car on a Saturday morning. You look at the dirty car, picture it clean, make a mental picture of what it looks like clean, and then do things to the car until it matches that picture. So not, Kim uses the skill of revisualization not only when she spells, but also when she cleans the room. Do you think for a moment that the child who can't spell because he can't revisualize suddenly develops a skill of revisualization when he goes home? Of course not. So on Saturday morning, Dad throws him in the bedroom and says, don't come out till this room is clean. He walks into the dirty room. He can't picture what it looks like clean, so he's got no idea where to begin. So he picks up a magazine. He says, whoa, how come the ultimate warrior? I haven't seen this yet. And he sits down and starts going through the... He sits down and starts going through the magazine, and Dad, and Dad, goes, Dad comes in and goes nuts. It's World War III because he's not cleaning the room. He can't do it. He can't do it. Because he can't picture what the room is going to look like when he's got done. He's got no idea what process to follow in order to meet that product. Asking a child who can't revisualize to clean his own room is exactly like doing this. Suppose I ran down the store and bought a 400-piece jigsaw puzzle and gave it to these seven or eight folks in the front row. And I gave them the jigsaw puzzle, and I said, here's a 400-piece jigsaw puzzle. Please put this together. You've got five hours to do it. Could they do that? Seven bright adults, five hours, 400-piece puzzle? Sure, they could do that. But suppose I did this. Suppose I opened up the box, threw the box top away, <laughs> put, the, put the pieces in the bag, shook up the bag, and gave them the bag and said, here, put this together. You've got five hours. Could they do that in five hours? Five days? Five months? Probably not. You know, they'd say, well, where's the picture? What's it going to look like when it's done? Well, I threw it away. Because they've got no idea what the end product's going to look like, they've got no idea how to, what process to go through to get to that end product. Asking a child with a learning problem who can't revisualize to clean his own room on a Saturday morning is just like asking these seven people to put together a jigsaw puzzle without knowing what it's going to look like at the end. So I go around the country and I tell people, you know, what you've got to do, Mom and Dad, is you've got to get up at 7 in the morning and clean the rooms for the kids, right? Right? Wrong, wrong, wrong. I am a huge believer in independence for these kids. I think one of the wisest things ever said about teaching and raising kids was said several hundred years before Christ. Several hundred years B.C., a Korean philosopher said to his people, there are only two lasting bequests we can give to our children. One is roots and the other is wings. In other words, our job as parents is to give our kids roots a place where they feel warm and loved and cared for, and also the wings to leave when that time comes. And we as special needs parents, parents as special needs kids, need to get a lot better at giving kids wings. You know what I do recommend for that kid, by the way? Get the room clean the way that you want it. Take a camera and take a picture from the room, of the room at all angles and put those, those pictures up in the bulletin board. Now he doesn't have to revisualize. Now you say, this is what I want your room to look like. This is what your room's going to look like, Doug, before you go out. It's got to look like this. Now he doesn't need to revisualize. Now he just looks at the picture and says, well, in this picture, there are no books in the table. There are no books in the table over there. I better put those away. And in this, in this picture, there are no clothes in the bed, and there are clothes in the bed. I better put those away. I am not here to say we need to do everything for these kids. Quite the contrary. But we do need to understand this is an extraordinarily pervasive disability. Extraordinarily pervasive disability that impacts on pretty much everything the kids do. We used to have a sign in our teacher's lounge where the teachers used to prepare their lessons, and the sign was two words. It just said, assume nothing, because uh, for a reason we're not really sure, many kids with learning problems have tremendous holes in their background information. 
remember teaching tell, a teacher telling me a story one time that she was babysitting for a very bright 13-year-old boy, 12 or 13-year-old boy. Um, she had had this student in school previously, and the parents were away, and so she was sitting for the, for the child. And he was very well behaved the whole time that she was there. So we decided, she decided she'd reward him, and she said, I'll get you anything you want for dinner. Now, this is a very bright, very capable kid with severe learning problems. Um, and she said, we'll go to the, to the supermarket, we'll buy anything you want for dinner, and I'll, I'll cook from scratch. I'm a pretty good cook, and I'll, I'll make you a special dinner. And so they got to the, to the supermarket, and she said, what would you like? And he said, I'd love French fries. I love French fries. She said, I know how to make them from scratch. I'll go get the oil. You go get the potatoes. And this very bright 13-year-old student with a learning disability said, why potatoes? He had no idea that French fries were made out of potatoes. Um, even though we knew, you know, it could, it could take apart the Starship Enterprise, many times our kids get very confused in, in class because they don't understand, they don't have background information that you would assume that they have. You can ignore the behavior, but you can't ignore the need. Right. So when a child, I uh, was consulting with the school recently, and there's a little boy, 11-year-old, beautiful kid, every day on his way to school, it was during a summer program, he'd buy a dozen bagels. And at recess, he'd give bagels to a a group of 10 or 11 kids would give them each a bagel and then they'd take one bagel and put it on the ground and everybody would step on it and he'd pick it up and eat it. Um, and the teacher said, well, he's doing it for attention. Well, then give him some. This kid is so desperate for attention, he's willing to humiliate himself at his own expense every day. Somebody's got to get this kid some attention yesterday. You know, he's doing it for attention, well, then give him some. How often do kids tell us what they need? He's telling them, I need attention. So much so, he's willing to take negative attention. So give that kid some attention and give it to him yesterday. In the early years of the field, people used to refer to learning disabilities as the hidden handicap because our kids, and when they become adults, don't look any different than anyone else. And we're a very visually oriented society. And so it's difficult for a teacher many times, or a parent, or an aunt, an uncle, or a grandparent, to look at an attractive, athletic uh, young person and understand really how, how troubled and, and how much they have to struggle. I remember a parent telling me one time that her son had to go fill out a passport form, and he was about 16 years old, and when you fill out a passport, you can't have anyone with you. And she knew he was going to have a great deal of difficulty signing his name, because it just gives you a little space to sign his name, and he had this tremendously large handwriting. So she said she went to the passport office and stood in the lobby and watched the different passport clerks handle customers until she picked the one she thought would be the most gentle and kind. And there was this one older woman, a passport clerk, and she was very gentle with her. It was a woman with a hearing aid, and she was very gentle with her and helpful with her. She said, that's the line to put my son in, and it's the longest line, but it's worth it. She put the son in the, in the line, moved up, moved up, moved up, and then he was alone with the clerk. Within three minutes, the clerk was yelling at him, calling the supervisor, I don't have this kind of time, he's asked for three forms, he spelled his name wrong. The point being, she was a wonderful person. She was a good person, but looking at this very attractive kid, it was very difficult for her to understand that it's possible to be an attractive, well-groomed kid and still have tremendous difficulty learning. What really hit me today that, that I came away with where I was thinking there are things that I have to do differently was when you were talking about remediation and compensatory strategies. And I started thinking about that when you were talking about dealing with a learning disability as being a life skill and that too often I think the student, the parent and I um, look at ways to accommodate the student in school and you know we extended time and, and computers on tests and perhaps a reduced workload and you know all of those things which are which are terrific and needed um, talking to the teachers all of those things but I started wondering about how much I have really been um, active and pushing parents and students to look at it as a long-term thing. You're saying that the, the focus right now for students and parents is all is on getting through school, getting through school yes. but it's a much larger program, problem that we have to be aware right. of and, and we have to get people to think long-term and mm -hmm. how it's going to affect them throughout their lives. Another thing that we've learned in the intervening years since the Fat City video is we now recognize that learning disabilities is a chronic condition. We used to think it was a condition of childhood. 
Now we recognize that, no, indeed, there are estimated millions of adults in the United States who have learning disabilities, who always had learning disabilities. There's a lot more attention on adolescents now. I was speaking at a high school just two weeks ago and found a great deal of frustration with hearing so many high school teachers who still say this to kids. I can't give you special help in high school because you're not going to get special help in college. The reality is they will. Every major college and university in the United States now has programs for kids who struggle with learning. And so college, we now recognize that this is a lifelong condition, and we're focusing particularly on adolescents. And there's so much work out now on the learning disabled adolescent, the adolescent with a learning disability. And I'll tell you, adolescence is absolutely the worst time in the lives for these kids. If you've got a child who's an adolescent with a learning problem, the good news is it's going to get better because adolescence is the most difficult time in the lifespan for these kids for three reasons. One is, and if you think about this, you realize it's true, adolescence, the high school years, are the only years in your life where you're expected to do everything well. Math, science, history, social studies, you're expected to do all things well. When you become an adult, you just have to do one thing well. You're not going to ask your doctor any, any history questions before she examines you. You're not going to ask your, your real estate broker any math questions before she helps you sell a house. The reality is in the real world, you only need, need to do one thing well. In the world of adolescence, you need to do all things well. We celebrate the generalists in adolescence. And one thing we know about kids with learning disabilities is that the way they're neurologically screwed together, they tend to be specialists, not generalists. And so the great irony is that the, the adult world is kinder to the person with learning problems than the world of high school is because the adult world allows you to, you can, you can have the white picket fence and 2.3 kids and you can have a great life if you can do one thing well. Only in high school are you expected to do all things well. So that's strike one against the child with a learning problem in high school. Strike two is that if you think about it, adolescence is the only time in the life, in the only time in the lifespan where being different is automatically bad. Think about it. Little kids love things that are different. Adults love things that are different. You take your five-year-old to the mall and he, she sees somebody dressed in a clown outfit. Oh, daddy, let's go see that. Little kids love things that are different. Adults love things that are different. You go to a cocktail party, you see somebody dressed in a dashiki or a turban or some sort of, a, of an outfit that people don't normally wear in your community. You want to go talk to that person. That person's different. He's got different experiences than I have. It would be interesting to talk to that person. Adults love things that are different. Little children love things that are different. But adolescents, uh-uh you better fit right in the little box that the other adolescents have made for you. If you're too short or you're too tall or you're lousy at sports or too good at sports or you're too good at school or lousy at school, if you don't fit in that little box, it's a terrible, terrible time. And the bottom line is these kids are different. These kids struggle with learning. And the third reason why adolescence is so difficult is something called recognition of permanence. And this is what this means. This happened to all of us at adolescence. At 16, 17, or 18 years old one day, you looked in the mirror and you realized that's it. What you see in the mirror is just a little bit smaller version of what you're going to be for the rest of your life. You look in the mirror and you say, this is it. I'm 17 or 18. I'm not going to be a whole lot different the rest of my life than I am what I see in the mirror right now. And if the day you look in that mirror, you like yourself. You're president of your class and you're captain of the football team and dating a cheerleader and you look in the mirror that day and you say, hey, I'm going to live with this guy for the next 60 years and I like him. He's okay. Recognition of permanence. I, I don't, I'm not going to mind being this person for the next 60 or 70 years. But what if you look in the mirror that day and you're failing in school and your teachers don't understand you and your parents are angry at you all the time and you don't have any friends and you look in the mirror and you say, this is it? This is going to be it for the rest of my life? That recognition of permanence happens in adolescence, and that's why we need to make sure that we continue to build the self-esteem of our adolescents. When I ran a high school for adolescent kids, you never knew when each of those kids was going to stand in front of the mirror and recognize and have recognition of permanence. And I wanted every day to be a great day for that kid. So anytime any one of those kids looked in the mirror, they'd say, hey, I went to my prom. I'm on the soccer team. I've got a date for the prom. I'm okay. I can live with that guy for the next 60 years. He's okay. I can live with him. So we recognize, since then, we've recognized even more important how the period of adolescence is. We've done a better job at defining learning disabilities. If you remember in the video, we used the definition of exclusion, where we talked about what learning disabilities is not. What we recognize now is we've got a lot better definition of learning disabilities. It still isn't nailed down. We're still not absolutely sure. 
state laws make changes, but at least now in the definitions of learning disabilities, we talk about it being a permanent condition. We talk about it being a generic condition, that they're different, one child is different from another, that, you, that the child with a learning problem not only is different from the general population, but also different one from another. And we also recognize what we call concomitant disabilities, or a very unattractive term, comorbidity, that it is possible to have more than one disability. It's possible to have Down syndrome and a learning disability at the same time. It's possible to be blind and learning disabled at the same time. It's possible to be deaf and learning disabled at the same time. We used to say if you were learning disabled, you excluded all those other labels. What we're realizing now is there's a lot more overlap than we thought that there was before. And I think that's one of the big steps that we've made in the field so far since the production of the video. The most exciting research that's been done since the video was produced, however, was in the area of attention deficit disorder. We know so much about this disability, it's been estimated that about 90% of what we know about this disability we've learned since the year 2000. There's been an explosion of research, an explosion of research in this field. In the video, I talk about the fact that many people don't understand the difference between attention span and distractibility, and there's a tremendous difference. We use the two terms interchangeably. The child's very distractible. He has no attention span. He has no attention span. He's very distractible. What we, be, what we realize, what we realize then and we realize more now, is that they are two very different kids. The child with no attention span is very different from the child who's distractible. The child with no attention span pays attention to nothing. The child who's distractible pays attention to everything. Big difference between those two kids. The, the distractible kid, it's sort of like looking, to, looking at the world through a wide-angle lens. If I put a wide-angle wide lens on my camera and try to get a picture of somebody here in the front row, no matter how much I tried to focus on that person, I'd get everybody else in the picture as well. That's the way it is for our kids. That's the way it is for our kids, that they just, they, they, they're in constant need of stimulation. A good analogy for attention deficit disorder is those little single-celled animals you used to look at. Remember in the eighth grade, you look at the microscope, those little single-celled animals? What we learned about those little paramecium and, and amoeba is they 24-7 were constantly searching for food. Constantly searching, never slept. They were just constantly searching for nutrition. Well, that's what it's like for people with attention deficit disorder. Except they're not looking for food, they're looking for stimulation. They need to be stimulated all the time. They need stimulation to the same degree that I need oxygen. And if you tried to cut off my oxygen supply, I would act against it. I would fight against it. That's what happens when you take a child who needs stimulation and you put them in a non-stimulating environment. So the teacher's in front of the class talking about the War of 1812, and suddenly this 11-year-old attention deficit disorder kid pushes the kid next to him off onto the floor. Why? The lecture wasn't stimulating enough. He needed more stimulation, so he actually created stimulation. What we're finding is if you take these kids and put them in a non-stimulating environment, they will actually create stimulation. But the most exciting thing we're learning about attention deficit disorder now, thanks to the good work of a number of people, is that the biggest problem that kids with ADD have is not necessarily the hyperactivity or the impulsivity or the distractibility. It's actually that lack of organization and inability to plan that really catches up with them by the time, by the time they get into high school. One of the things we're realizing now is the child who can't comprehend in this reading class also can't comprehend social skills. The child who can't follow sequences in his math class also can't follow social sequences. And what we're finding very intriguing is this concept of social contracts. As you go through a day, by this time of the day, near the end of the day, you've probably been through a thousand social contracts already. And what we're finding is our kids don't understand the social contracts. An example of a social contract is this. You go in to get coffee at your coffee place in the morning. You walk in, there are four people in line. You don't know them, you'll never meet them again, but you have a social contract with them. Your social contract is what? Get at the end of the line. Get at, I mean, it would be totally inappropriate to get in front of the line. Now you're in line and you get three or four people come in and they're standing behind you. Now you have a social contract with those folks. Your social contract is move up as the line moves up, decide what you want off the menu, so when you get up you can make a transaction and get your money ready. Many kids with learning problems don't understand those social contracts. They don't understand the social obligations, much, much more than manners. They don't understand the social contracts. Right now, we're obviously filming something here. There's a film crew. We're all, you folks are all sitting and looking at me. We're sitting in what is obviously a film set. If a person who worked maintenance in this building were to open the door, he'd take one look in here and read the social situation and step out quietly. 
how many of the kids you work with would walk right through? <laughs> totally unable to pick up on all of the social cues in this environment. One of the most frequent calls we get is from parents, uh, moms especially, who um, are so uh, depressed about the fact that their child doesn't get invited to birthday mm, parties, okay, doesn't yeah. get included in neighborhood uh, games or anything. Um, and then as they grow into teenagers, of course, it, be, it often becomes worse. Uh, and then as adults, they may have gotten the academic skills to be successful at work, but they fail at the water fountain. Mm -hmm. They very often just don't have the social skills that uh, they need to work in a, a fast-paced environment. In my career, um, I've probably had 50 times, 5-0, 50 times that a parent has sat at my desk and just fallen apart and sobbed about their special needs child. And not once in those 50 times was, it, was the parent crying because the kid couldn't read or the kid couldn't write or the kid couldn't spell. Every time a parent is reduced to that kind of pain, it's about the social isolation and social rejection that kids suffer every day. And that absolutely applies to social situations. When you're in a cocktail conversation or you're at the family dinner and you're going about what your day is, I see with my brother a lot that by the time he sort of catches up with where we are, he's responding to something that we were talking about five, ten minutes ago, not unlike somebody with a hearing disability, where, you know, they sort of chime in when they figure out what they, what they think you were talking about five minutes ago, it's, and it's very much a processing question, and it absolutely, it absolutely affects the social scenario. I just know one student in particular who struggles with this and it's hard because the other students in the class don't understand it and she takes too much time, she talks too much, she butts in, she tells stories that are inappropriate and it's so hard. And there's some, some kids who are understanding and compassionate but there are others who, who just make fun of her because they just don't understand that she doesn't get it, she doesn't pick up on those cues. And of course, the reason they're making fun of her is not because they're cruel children, but again, being different in childhood is a curse. Uh, you just can't be different. Uh, they expect you to fit in your little box. Uh, and also, if, as long as they can get everyone making fun of her, no one's making fun of them, so they feel pretty safe. I do a lot of work with friendship skills with kids, and I remember interviewing a little boy one time, about 10 years old, and he's sitting in front of me, and his mom is sitting behind him, and I said, do you have a lot of friends at school? And he said, yes, I do. And his mother's in back going, mm-mm. And I said, uh, well, who are your friends? And he named about 10 or 15 kids. And I said, why are they your friends? And he said, they're the kids who don't pick on me, which means he's divided the world into two groups, the people who pick on him and the people who are his friends. He really doesn't have any idea what a friendship is, doesn't have any idea about the, the give and take in a friendship. Just the kids who don't pick on him, they're his friends, which is a pretty sad place to be as a 10-year-old kid. Mel Levine, who I, one of my heroes in the field, just tremendous researcher, was doing, he talked to me the other day, and he was doing an informal, had an informal group of about 15 adolescents with learning problems, and he asked them the magic wand question. He said, if I gave you a magic wand, and you could use that to get rid of your academic problems and you do better in school, or you could use the magic wand to get rid of your social problems and have more friends, what would you choose to do? Every single kid said he'd use the wand on the social skills. Yeah, it's tremendous, tremendous impact on these kids' lives, and we're just now beginning to understand what an impact it has. And we're also beginning to understand what we can do about it. Another area that we receive a lot of study now is what's called performance and consistency, and that is that, that they, they, just, they can do it on Wednesday, but they can't do it on Thursday. And the analogy is it's as if when in the mind of the child with a learning disability that there are three clocks, and the clocks are moving at different times and tell, moving at different speeds, telling different times. So they're totally out of sync with their environment, they're confused, but the law of averages will tell you if you take three clocks and set them at different times and move them at different speeds, they will eventually, they'll come at a point in time where bingo, 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 they're all telling the same time. And that's what happens with our kids, is they're out of sync and all of a sudden the clocks get in sync and they have a week or a month, if you're lucky, of incredible forward progress and then the clocks get out of sync again. My thing has always been that the acid test for those of us who teach and work with these kids is not what you do with the kids in the bad days. We're trained to deal with kids in the bad days. The real acid test is what do you do with the kids in the good days? Because what we do when a kid has a good day, we actually punish them for it. You know, I guess you can do what you put your mind to it, can't you? 
You know, and, and instead of taking that good day and embracing it, we actually punish the child for it. When I work with a child who goes to a school system that doesn't understand him, and he says, you know, Mr. Lavoie, sometimes I wake up in the morning, I know I'm going to have a good day. I tell them, don't go to school. They'll beat you over the head with that day for the rest of your academic career. You know, because, because we say, well, you did it April 15th, you know, 2003. Why can't you do it today? We need to understand that as frustrating as it is for us as parents and teachers that kid, the kid can do it Wednesday but can't do it Thursday. Imagine how frustrating it is for the child. In talking about the is versus has, understanding that not the child is a problem, it has a problem. There's a, an interesting area of study that's going on now related to one of the things we talked in the video so long ago, uh, and that is the associative um, versus cognitive. And what we're learning now is that there are things with our kids that will really demystify the way we handle many of our kids and some of the problems that they have. And it's called kinetic melodies. And what we find is that neurologically, if there's something you do over and over and over again, for instance, signing your name, you could close your eyes and sign your name and your signature looks exactly like it does if your eyes were open brushing your teeth, taking a shower. You've done those things so many times you, that your neurological system has developed a set of kinetic melodies for them. So you don't even need to think about it. You just automatically, when you take a shower this evening, you know you'll wash your body parts the same, in the same order, the same way. You hold the soap in the same hand when you brush your teeth. You hold the toothpaste in the same hand, the brush in the same hand. You develop kinetic melodies. So you can actually talk to someone while you're showering. You can have a conversation, listen to the TV while you're brushing your teeth. Because it's an associative process. What we're finding is for many of our kids, they don't develop those kinetic melodies. So when they brush their teeth, it's like they've never done it before. Um, and you watch a child with learning problems, you'll see one day you hold the toothpaste in his right hand and the brush in the left hand and, right, and vice versa. And, and it makes it much easier to understand once you realize that, that the in, you've made your bed a hundred times. Yeah, but it's like it's been a hundred different experiences for them. And so many of the things, getting ready for school, getting dressed, that should be so routine for them, they just haven't developed those kinetic melodies. I've never met an uh, adolescent with a learning disability who knows how to tie a tie. Um, because it, it, it's a series of kinetic melodies you go through, and they're just not able to do it. And that's what we're talking about, is being able to understand that when the child does something like that, makes the bed perfectly on Wednesday but can't make it on Thursday, you need to realize it's not, again, it's not that the child is a problem, but the child has a problem. It's like he's never done that experience before. And when you think of the number of kinetic melodies you have in your life, putting on your socks, combing your hair, things that you've done thousands and thousands of times that you just automatically do neurologically. And these kids, every time they do it, it's like a brand new experience.